This morning we conclude our study in Paul's letter to the Colossians, having the privilege of starting this series and now closing it out. It appears to me that these two messages seem to serve as bookends, and in fact, they are. The content of both appear not only as matching bookends, but also as mirrors of each other. Paul started the letter with greetings and prayer, thankful prayer, and closed it out with thankful prayer and greetings. In both cases, pointing to the proclamation of the mystery of Christ at the center of our lives. As mirrors, everything in between is amplified and gives that much more encouragement and power to transform our lives to the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel while promoting the centrality of Christ in everything. And so by design, The start and the finish of this letter have great value in pointing us forward to living out our hope in Christ while taking us full circle, reminding us of how God has brought us this far in Him, transformed in the process and prepared to participate in His mission. So join me in prayer before we read what God has to say to us through Paul's final thoughts and then examine how that speaks to us. Father, lead us in this moment through your word. Apply them to our hearts, transform our minds so that we would be more and more transformed into the image of Christ and embrace the truth of your scripture as it applies to our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Colossians Chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Hear God's word. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of our Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is, also, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. 
that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings, send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church of Laodice- at the Laodiceans and that you turn, in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. While studying these final thoughts, I discovered three important elements that wrap up this letter and flow into one another. First is devotion to constant prayer with its transforming power. Partnership in proclaiming Christ and encouragement of a faithful support system. Devote yourself to prayer. Some translate it as keep persisting in prayer or continue steadfastly. Paul says elsewhere to the Thessalonians, pray continually. You know, it would seem that prayer is the most important thing that we can do since by it we express our complete dependence on God. In prayer, we have fellowship with the triune God. It is in prayer combined with His Word that we seek Him and His will and come to know Him and His will. It's no wonder Paul wrapped his letter in prayer. Prayer isn't a magic formula. It's not like some would say in some psychological articles that it's some kind of psychological therapy. It's, uh, it's something more than that. It may serve that purpose for a very short-term help in someone's emotional state at some point, but it's not a magic formula. It's not something that's left at that. Power from prayer isn't from prayer itself. Power of prayer finds its, its strength in the one to whom we pray because God is infinite in power and infinite in grace and His goodness. And He hears and He answers according to His will. Prayer is to be a constant and essential as lifeblood because that's what it is. It's in prayer that we expose, excuse me, that we express our reliance on God for everything and how we express our thanksgiving for His blessings and promises. It's where we pour our hearts out to God. It's where we declare our devotion to Him and our love for Him. It's where we seek His mercy and forgiveness. It's where we place our hope in God for all things in the present and forever. This reminds me of something that we should learn from the Lord's Prayer. It's more than merely a guide to how we should pray or the content of prayer, but it's also a framework for how we should think and live. 
devoted to and dependent on God alone for His glory alone. So it's no wonder Paul reminds us to devote ourselves to prayer. In the midst of prayer, we are also to be watchful or some translate alert as we pray. And we are to pray with a mindset of thanksgiving, of thankfulness. While being alert in prayer and thankful in prayer, they may be two different things. I think they are actually quite linked together. Being watchful or alert can be taken either positively or negatively, or both. It most likely refers to a readiness to pray in every circumstance, that there is nothing in our lives that should not be saturated in prayer, whether needs or praises. Being alert in prayer may also prompt a a thankful mindset in prayer by watching out that we don't drift into doubt or hopelessness due to the influences around us that could cast doubt on the sufficiency of the gospel, but instead remembering that Christ is supreme, that He is sufficient, that He is everything, that He is enough, that we are satisfied in Him. And that causes praise and places thanksgiving at the heart of prayer. So that watchfulness in prayer can lead to thankfulness in prayer. They are connected. That watchfulness and that thankfulness in prayer creates a sense of anticipation and hope. So when Paul goes on to ask for prayer that God would open a door for the proclamation of the gospel, since it is God who calls us to it, we have good reason to be assured that He will, in fact, open a door, which gives us a thankful mindset from the start. We remember God's promises rather than concern for the obstacles. And so, not only is our prayer life then promise-oriented rather than problem-oriented, so our lives then follow as being promise-oriented rather than problem-oriented. And that's a prayer of faith. So, when we pray with alertness and thankfulness for an open door, as, as Paul asks for, we should certainly be alert to God's power and possibilities and thankful for when and where God opens that door. After all, it is God who gives prayer its power since He is the one we come to and the one who keeps His promises that we hope in. And having been alert to the power of prayer, we actually would already be praying for that clarity in the proclamation of the message that Paul had also asked for. Nothing is more important, I don't believe, to ask for in prayer because this is what Christ Himself lived for and died for, for our redemption. So, knowing Christ and proclaiming Christ was central to the whole of Paul's life. That added comment, for which I am in chains, also referenced at the end of the letter, 
should stir our devotion all the more to pray for the clear proclamation that he asks for. It tells, excuse me, it it tells how devoted Paul and his companions were to the mission of making Christ known. We might remember how Paul expressed that devotion when we go back to what he said was the primary purpose that he labors for in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He is the one we we proclaim, cautioning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously agonize with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And they did not see their imprisonment as a hindrance, but as an opportunity or even a means to an open door for the gospel. So their devotion and their positive view of their situation should all the more inspire prayer for them and a desire to somehow be partners with them in their mission. It inspires a desire to want to be a part of something so exciting and so great that you would give anything to be a part of it that its worth is beyond imagining. So here is where the first point of devotion to prayer and the second point of partnership and proclaiming Christ overlap, where they flow into each other. As we pray for the success of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, making that central to our hearts and our prayers, we become partners in the proclamation of Christ. There is something perhaps somewhat unexpected that we may not consider that often happens in prayer. While we are looking outwardly in prayer, God is doing something inwardly in us as we pray. What if while we pray for an open door for the gospel in places where perhaps where missionaries that we support are working, God unexpectedly opens a door right here where we are. That may be a good reason to be alert in prayer. In fact, Paul expected just that. That's why he, right after asking for prayer for himself, for the proclamation for a gospel, for an opening for the message and the ability to proclaim it clearly, he then goes on to instruct the Colossians on how to promote the gospel themselves as a lifestyle with the assumption that they will, in fact, have the opportunities to do so. So you see what's happening here? Paul asks for prayer in proclaiming Christ, and in doing so, he brings them in as partners in the gospel through prayer. And it's all the more put in their hearts to be a part of it. But as I noted er earlier, Prayer doesn't just bring transformation in the lives and the world around us, but also brings transformations in us, often making us the very instruments of our own prayers and partners with God in His mission and kingdom. God leaves no one 
on the sideline as an observer. And he graciously works through what he has given each of us, knowing our strengths and our limits. Beginning in prayer, we become partners with God in proclaiming Christ to the world. In that partnership, he prepares us to proclaim Christ where we are as opportunities arise, and they do. So Paul says to make good use of them with wisdom in how we act toward those outside the faith. See, that wisdom allows each of us to judge what is most fitting for each of us according to the need and our opportunities to address it most appropriately in that moment to God's glory. Paul's guidance here is very similar to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, which he said, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Simply be alert to that open door and take the opportunity to tell your story of hope in Christ. Paul says it somewhat in reverse. The grace that we should bring into any conversation along with the idea of salt and the right proportion to provide a welcoming seasoning are words that make the conversation worthwhile and invite questions that open the door to answers most appropriate to the conversation that only our knowledge of Christ and hope of the gospel alone can provide. The third point of encouragement of a faithful support system comes from the remainder of the letter, the final greetings. While some may think these greetings are merely just that and insignificant in the rest of the letter, I believe taken as a whole and the connection they have with most names listed here These greetings provide incredible encouragement and incentive to persevere in Christ, keeping him at the center. I'll highlight just a few. Tychicus and Onesimus are the ones delivering the letter and providing them with information on how Paul and everyone with him are doing and to be an encouragement to them. They would, of course, remember Onesimus as a runaway slave and likely now be amazed at his transformation as a faithful brother in Christ. That alone should be very impactful to their own faith. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is also named here as being with Paul, which is significant. When we consider the backstory and acts of Paul, earlier, his earlier opinion of Mark that caused his split with Barnabas, whether or not that the Colossians knew of it, we do, we do, and we can be encouraged by the apparent transformation in most likely both Mark and Paul. There's more to that story that may be more beautiful than we know. This Mark is believed by most scholars to be the one who wrote the gospel. And here, Paul asked the Colossians to welcome him along with some special instructions for him. Epaphras 
we know had ministered among them, proclaiming Christ, and now is described as wrestling in prayer for them. So we see in him, again, that same heart as Paul in how he agonizes in prayer for others. Again, reminding us of the life devoted to prayer. Much like the heroes and martyrs of the faith who in the heavenly realms make up a great cloud of witnesses in the book of Hebrews, to the Colossians, these names here, though still on earth, are for them a cloud of witnesses. They serve them as a faithful support system, laboring with them and for them, whether at a distance or in some cases in person. They are named because they testify to the transforming grace of God and the preeminence of Christ at the center of their lives. They testify to God's faithfulness. They testify to the value of fellowship of the saints in Christ. They testify with Paul as co-laborers in the gospel. They are named here because they have a personal interest in the spiritual well-being of the Colossians and serve as models for them. So it would seem that we ought not to take this final greeting lightly or we may miss its value in seeing the worth of each individual and each one's contribution to the proclamation of Christ and the growth of the body of Christ. It tells us that we are members and cared for that we were remembered and that we are cared for. It also tells us that we are part of something much bigger than ourselves and that our place in it does not go unnoticed. Except for Mark and Luke, none of these names would be known if Paul had not named them here. None of them show up anywhere else in a way that would prompt name-dropping None of these were names of significance and value till Paul valued them and made them significant. They were of value and of significance to Paul and the Colossians. They were named because they were valued as those the Colossians could count on. They were named because the Colossians were assured that they had them in their hearts and in their prayers. They were named because Paul certainly saw them as co-laborers in the gospel, as models of those devoted to prayer, as partners in proclaiming Christ, and as a faithful support system to encourage the church in its mission to proclaim Christ and keep him at the center of our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, apply these words to us in a way that moves us to keep you at the center. Move us to devote ourselves to prayer as partners in proclaiming Christ, seizing every opportunity that you present to us. And help us to be thankful for one another and how we support one another in prayer and in the mission that you have set before us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.